Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're getting out in nature. We're going to get around the trees. We're going to see the animals. We're going to talk about nature-themed games. And we're talking to Erica Buyuris. Erica, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited that you're here. Happy to be talking to you about these games. Now, what's funny, and we were talking about this before the show, uh, you didn't necessarily mean to design a whole bunch of nature-only games. you got a lot of games coming out, but just the way the publishing schedule has worked out, you have a, several uh, nature-themed games that have come out recently or, or you know, in recent months and whatnot. And so it's just kind of funny the way you're, you're, you're not actually the, the nature girl. <laughs> you want to do all sorts of stuff. No, it just, just but, looks uh, that way right now. <laughs> it just looks that way. But I'm excited to talk to you about kind of how these games, you know, came to be, the different mechanisms, things like that. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, you know what? I'm actually just a regular school teacher by day. Uh, and it's it's interesting. I've always been into games my whole life, but I never really thought about making them without realizing I always was making them. Uh, so one of the easiest ways for kids to learn is if you can turn something into something that's either really novel or trivial or something that's going to make it stand out in some sort of really special way. That's how you create memories and how you make them last. So if I want my students to really learn something, I have to find some really, really engaging or entertaining way of delivering that information. And so I was doing that, I guess, without even thinking, um, kind of making all these games and activities for them so that they could learn through them. And I kind of got to this point, you know, as a game player myself, and it's funny I say this because almost none of the games I make are actually for Like, I don't really make a lot of kids games, which you think I would be. Um, but yeah, so I started thinking, well, I was like, well, wait a second. Maybe there is something that I can kind of translate that I'm doing into something bigger. Like, you know, I always wanted to write. That was one of the things I always wanted to do. I really, really wanted to write a novel but anyone who's ever tried knows exactly what goes into that. It is so much, not just coming up with the story. I think that's the good, the part I'm good at, but it's like the amount of work it goes into editing and refining. I might not be the most disciplined for something like that. And so what I just kind of slowly discovered trying to make games, it was, it was a way of coming up with a story and getting to actually experience the story relatively quickly like you get to dive right into either the characters or the setting or the theme or whatever it is way faster and you can see the results of it way faster than if you try to write that same story and a big part of me making games was well, it was kind of this fascinating medium of how to tell these stories or these just things happening around that you can you can represent them in games, and there's something so cool about that. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I'm right there with you. One thing I love about games over books and over writing stories and whatnot is that you get to actually engage with the story. You're not just mm. sitting there as an observer and and just taking it all in. You get to actually 
ebb and flow and change things and move things around and put characters here and and the character died and it, that wouldn't have happened in the book and they wouldn't have died on the third turn in the book you know but you can do different things that actually are engaging i think that's a really cool way to do it now as far as games in your classroom this is something i'm super interested in what have you done uh, in your classroom that, that maybe other people could learn from any any tips or tricks maybe for somebody who's a teacher or you know a stay-at-home parent that homeschools anything like that as far as advice for them you know what the neat thing is, is having uh, the, the best thing about a lot of games is there's a lot of of discovery that comes through a game, right? Like information isn't always just given to you. Maybe the rules are, but you have to earn things in games. And information is very interesting that way, where if someone has to earn something, they are so much more likely to actually remember it. You know what I mean? Like it's the difference of, let's say, I'm sure most people remember being in high school, university. I like to call it the binge and dump where you try to learn everything as fast as you can. You remember it for like two weeks for a test and then you never remember it ever, ever again. It's because you're not connected to that information in absolutely any way at all. And so it really does come down to, as you said, like you have to interact with it. And how often do you get to interact with information unless you can turn it into some sort of... Uh, either something that's you can explore or some sort of activity. So this is just a really silly example, but I'll give it because I do it every year that I have to teach grade threes. Um, kind of like uh, putting together these fun little mysteries. So I have to teach them a lot about um, we do First Nations and like early settlers to Canada. And one of the things we have to look at is what was life like for both sets of people. And so one of the things is, well, you have to you know, know about dangers if you're going to farm because things can eat your animals. So it's going to sound really silly, but I always have these, uh, these two classroom chickens. They're just these fake paper chickens. But what happens is I get the class kind of attached to them. Like there are chickens, they live at the carpet. You know, we, we pretend to take care of them for like a, a week or so. And then all of a sudden one of them goes missing and there'll be paw prints I'll put all over the room that go to at least three or four different animals. And there'll be these different activity stations where you could learn about those animals because you need to deduce which one was actually likely to have done anything to the chicken. Like which one are we trying to protect our chicken coop against? Because then we'll know what we need to do to protect the rest of the chickens. Right. And so we'll have like rabbit prints and you're like, well, you know, if you know anything about rabbits, rabbits, but there might be things like foxes and possums and so what they're actually doing is they're exploring all these things but they remember this because they remember that their chicken is gone it matters to them so they want to unravel the mystery and as i said this is like a bit of a silly example but it's one of those things where it will it absolutely creates a lasting memory because what happens they go home and say you know the fox ate our chicken and like it becomes this whole thing that sounds silly, but it is just novel enough that they retain the information. I bet you you could go to students that I've had, like even a few years ago, and ask them something random about any of those animals, and they'll be like, I think that animal's an omnivore. I think that animal's like a carnivore. Things like that, right? Yeah, that's awesome. I want to do something similar with my seniors, except it would be, how did you lose your scholarship? Okay. And we can talk through all the different paths and lives that you could take that cost you a whole lot of money you know, in college or something like that. And just maybe take it a little bit uh, to the next level or something. <laughs> how did you lose your job? Yeah. And so uh, I think it's the same idea though, right? It's trying to get people to process information and then that way they'll actually hold on to it versus like you're saying, just memorize it for a, a minute or two yeah. and then it's going to be forgotten. I think it's a really cool way to do it. 
it has to be meaningful. We forget that a lot. Information has to mean something for us to care about it. And I yeah. think games can kind of be the same way, right? Like, what are the games we care about the most? It's the ones that we get the feelings that we like the best from. Like, it makes me feel smart, or it makes me feel connected to my friends, or it makes me... And it always comes down to that feeling, right? And so I think that 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 same connection is there. It's like, the more interactive or engaged you are by something the more you are either to remember it or hopefully like it in terms of, you know, gameplay and things like that. Absolutely. Well, let's start talking about these uh, different kinds of games. Let's talk about nature-themed games. First of all, let's get a good little working definition. If someone says nature-themed, if you're, if you're thinking about a game that's got some kind of nature theme, what does that mean exactly as far as in your opinion? I would think either environmental or animal. Okay, cool. And then go a little bit deeper with that as far as, especially the environmental. Uh, tell me a little bit more. Uh, so, for example, like, I mean, obviously, Bosque is your trees and leaves. I mean, you can't really get much more nature-based than that. And photosynthesis is kind of similar where it's, it's just trees. Uh, you've got, there's a lot of games coming out right now, too, that are also, like, uh, tons of bee games um there seems to be a lot of butterfly games that are butterflies about. yeah absolutely i don't know right? it's like five in the last year have well, either been just, announced or yeah come out exactly and, and that's why i say bees fall into that same category mm -hmm. too right where it's just like why are there eight bee games but there are and so there must yep. be something connecting people to these themes in the first place right there's so one thing one theory i have when it comes to nature themed games is there's something most of us inherently understand how it acts. So for example, Roar. So Roar was one of the very first games that I ever had published. And it, you are lions in Africa. It's based on six different lions that actually existed. Unfortunately, most of them are extinct now, which is just sad. So you can learn something from my game. You can learn about lions that used to exist. Uh, anyway, all of the actions, all the mechanics that take place in the game are all directly related to how a lion acts behaviorally anyway. So even if you have a vague understanding of kind of like just how a lion is, you're already going to have an inherent sense to a degree of how to play. And I think that's really what's interesting about a lot of nature-themed games is, uh, you know, again, uh, Bosque is a good example. It's trees and leaves. And your objective is literally to blow leaves using the wind to spread across the ground. Well, that's what leaves do. They fall from trees and they get blown in the wind. And so there's no part of you that has a disconnect, I think, from a lot of nature themes, as long as they don't get too abstract, that is. Um, that you, there's some sort of comfort level and in already inherently understanding that you're already going to kind of get how to play the game. And I think that's really, really important. If you notice about a lot of uh, nature themed games, a lot of people would probably classify them as gateway games those games that seem to be really accessible to more than just hobby gamers like um it's amazing how much games like let's say uh, wingspan has spread so far out of hobby because of the theme like at its core it's a little engine builder that's got some euro going on right but who would have thought there were so many bird lovers out there and really the game is the people who are being brought into this to the hobby right now are being brought in because of the theme. They don't know anything about those type of mechanics. You can't explain angle to them 
and get them to say, oh, that sounds fun. I mean, you probably just made the game sound as boring as possible. But if you're like, oh, look at all these cool birds and they do stuff like birds do in real life. And if you know anything at all about how birds act, you'll probably have a sense of how to play. Well, then they might go, okay, I I could do that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's such an advantage for a game when the mechanisms make sense based on the theme. When like in in Bosk, when the leaves are going to move because the wind blows. Oh, that just makes sense. You know, based on the direction of the wind, the leaves are going to move in in that direction. And so it's such a huge, huge thing to think about when you're designing any game with any anything. But how how do the mechanisms line up so that it's intuitive for the, the players to understand? And then, you know, thinking more about Wingspan, I bet that's why we have so many more nature themed games coming out because publishers are seeing green. They're not seeing nature. They're seeing green. Okay. More people are being brought into the hobby for these types of themes and types of games. So let's make more of them. And I think it's just going to be a really interesting snowball that uh, it gets bigger and bigger and hopefully brings in more and more people into the hobby and, and, you know, allows for lots of different cool things to to come out of it. I think they're naturally visual too. And that's something that we can't lose. They're also not themes that are connected to certain types of groups. And I know that might sound kind of silly, but if you do think about certain types of, uh, especially hobby games, you know, if I was going to say the word minis, that's already going to put a type of game into someone's head or scare off a certain type of player. There's something about nature themes that are so approachable that, you know, I, I think you just, you can't discount how, far that can really take a game because the audience the audience is just so much wider for it yeah it's another good point also as far as the visual it gives such an opportunity for amazing beautiful art oh yeah beautiful components right favorite part of parks really if you ask them i don't hear a ton of people go oh my god the gameplay is the best thing ever no they'll say it is beautiful they love looking at the cards do you know what i mean yeah, absolutely. Or with Bosque or photosynthesis, you have these like giant pretty trees that it really stands out. And so when someone walks by a table at a convention and some people are playing it, they stop and say, well, what game is this? I haven't seen this. It looks amazing. Same with Parks. And there's lots of uh, other games that just have amazing nature themes. Uh, the, the game from Edo Baraf, uh, it was all about, you know, painting beautiful landscapes and, and mm. na- things from nature and sunsets over water, I think is what it's called. Uh, just lots and lots of games that have amazing opportunities for art. And so I think that is another thing that makes them, one, stand out, but also draws more people in. Oh, yeah. Instant table presence. And the one nice thing that nature themes also allow for is that 3D quality or that toyetic quality that I think we're seeing more and more as sort of a trend at the moment. Because the thing is, there is so much competition, we have to be honest. Your game can't be plain. It can't be more of the same. There has to be something novel or different about any game at this point. Um, and what's really neat about a lot of nature themes is that, as we said, not only are they insanely colorful for the most part, but almost all of them lend themselves to some sort of, um, some, some sort of table presence, something that can be constructed or created, or, you know, they lend themselves to those moments that, uh, designers love to see where people actually take pictures of what the final result looks like. You know, and you really get that from, from nature games a lot more, like you can play a ton of games of almost any kind but oftentimes you don't stop at the end and take a picture of what the final board looks like but if you think about nature games a lot of them lend themselves to that it's what did you create when you finished yeah definitely and if you think about a game like everdale which is about little forest creatures running around doing stuff but you have this giant 
tree. Unnecessary, obnoxious really? a little bit, but amazing tree. <laughs> there, yeah. But it's also and it stands out. I mean, I remember when I first saw that game on Kickstarter way back when. I was like, what is what is this? And it was like, wow. And it wasn't my style of game, but I was immediately drawn into wanting to know more about it. And so I think that's like you're saying, with components, with trees, with 3D things, and you've got several games, a couple games that do that. Uh, and so actually let's let's start talking about some of your games. Let's talk about Roar. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Roar, and then let's talk about kind of how it started and, and then kind of the, the ins and outs of the design process for it. Uh, so Roar was based off, first off, I was like, why has no one ever made a game about lions? Unless it's for like children, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, because let's be fair, they have their really interesting behavior. Um, and it was in, it was even more interesting doing research because the game did require research. We uh, Daryl and I kind of set the game roughly around about 1900 in Africa to sort of have a rough sense of how the map could be cut. Cause I'll be really honest. Uh, it, it gets, it, it gets, you know, kind of fuzzy when it comes to country lines in Africa, especially as time goes on, uh, who owns what, where the boundary line, by, that kind of thing. So we tried our best to sort of um, kind of reset to a bit of a bit of an older time when these six different types of lions actually were completely native and natural to Africa. What's neat about lions is they already naturally are area control animals. They function like that. They have they have a critical mass. They don't allow pride size to get over a certain certain amount. They inherently know when you know, uh, their group can't be over a certain size because they can't feed themselves or they only allow a certain amount of males, you know, once uh, males hit puberty, things like that. There's things that already kind of click in perfectly with the area control mechanic just based on how lions act naturally. So it was, and I think that's another, that's what does make nature really interesting is you get to translate their behavior through mechanics, and as we were talking about, you know, a few minutes ago, is there there is something really, um, intuitive about it. We get how they're supposed to act. If they acted a different way, we'd probably be very confused and very disappointed, right? Uh, so in roar, uh, just like a lion, uh, you can actually roar at other lions, show your dominance, and if your pride size happens to be larger, that will actually attract females from other prides to you. Um, some of the, um, they, they can breed, they can have cubs, but just like lions, they don't mature quickly. So you have to take your cubs with you or you have to protect them in areas until they mature because cubs can't survive without adults that are present and they have to be hunters. And that's another factor is only females hunt when it comes to lions. So you can, it's great to have males because males kind of, uh, denote your pride strength, but without females, you can't eat. And so you have the, this constant balance of you have to keep, you know, spreading. You have to keep taking over areas. You got to make sure that they have enough food in them to maintain balances. You can't be over a certain size. You have to have females hunting. You have the people, you know, taking care of your cubs. But then we have a human element. And so each round, a new human hut will enter into the highest, uh, the higher populated food areas. Because, of course, humans want to go where all the food is. And they drive the lions out. So they make it a little more scarce and a little more scarce. And that's a bit of the pressure that gets introduced in the game. Uh, and at the end of the game, it's, you know, not necessarily as realistic, but we allow some of the houses to be removed just for like that last minute push to see if you can kind of take back some of those higher quality uh, or the higher payout areas. Uh, but we also allowed for 
some um, uh, kind of objective uh, play as well. So you could purposely be gaining points for things that are happening within the game, not just because you happen to be playing, you know, to the lion's strengths of just of they're each each lion's asymmetrical. So in in any area. You know, there's always going to be a chance of kind of getting stuck in a corner somewhere. You won't just be, you know, that's it. You lost. The game is over because you have these objectives as a way of counterbalancing uh, things that can actually come up in that that kind of game. Yeah, very cool. And so tell me about the the way you score points in the game, the victory conditions, things like that, the way you, way you win. Because one thing that I feel like is, is a struggle with nature games is that you can't really win nature. You know, it's not yeah. a natural thing that has winners or losers, so to speak. I mean, you're either here or you're extinct. And I guess maybe that's a win or loss, <laughs> yeah. but it, you can't really win the forest, win uh, the plains. And so like, how do you translate you know, something that's not really a, a type of game in re- the real world that's winning or losing? How do you turn that into actually scoring points so that you can win or lose in a board game? Yeah, so we turned it into kind of like you, you, you come in, you, it's how you place in the game. So it becomes a quantity thing. So, you know, did you place first, second, third in something? It's also based on players to how many points get, you know, split out. So we almost never do came in last. You're probably going to get nothing. I'll just put it that way. Um, so what we have is uh, who has the most territories, who has the most, you know, um, lions, who has the most cubs, Things like that. So there is multiple ways of scoring if you're focusing in your last few turns as ways of trying to give you a bit of a bump. Because there's nothing worse than sitting there counting out going, oh, that person beat me. Well, you might not know, right? Because you don't know what objectives they've satisfied. You don't, you know, you don't know if they're, what they're going to do on their last couple turns that might increase or decrease your, like increase their pride size or decrease yours. And so it's a bit of a fight for, um, for, I guess, literal dominance of, uh, you know, who came in first, second, third, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's a great way to do it. Now, what are some of the the things that you learned while designing this game? And also, what what are some of the things that uh, gamers, players of your game will learn about Lions through the game? Uh, You know, what was really interesting as my very first game, it was my first time I have intentionally tried now working with different publishers and I will say anyone who's interested in getting design, definitely talk to designers who've worked with publishers, find out what it's like. I will tell you that nobody I've worked with has been the same at all. And so you're going to have, everyone's going to have, you know, highs and lows in different ways. And so what was really interesting was Aurora was my first time getting to see that because it was the very first publisher I ever worked with, which was IDW. And it was really fascinating to kind of see like, well, what does it look like from the inside of stuff? What are deadlines like? What did they expect from designers? Um, as you keep working with different uh, publishers, it's how much effort does the publisher put in? How much effort do they expect from you? Um, how much approval rating do they want themselves or from you? Or, uh, you know, are they dubbing it themselves? Are you dubbing it? There's so many levels and layers to working with any publisher. And that was sort of my my first kind of jump into that it was roar and it was really interesting even balancing against i i could tell you nothing like what was bosk was like and nothing like what kadama 3d was like and you know it, it is really fascinating as you work with publishers that the experience can be so varyingly different in in, in so many different ways yeah definitely now what did you learn about lions through the process of the game and like what what, what do you think people will be able to take away after playing it so the lions are actually based off of real uh, lions that were 100% around uh, Africa and going a little bit up into the Mediterranean. There were six types. All six are real. 
Uh, and we even, the, the lions are asymmetrical. So the, the abilities they have in the game are based off of kind of their natural characteristics. So lions that happened, there were lions that were like a little larger or, you know, might've had a, were known to have a bit more cubs or were faster or take their natural talents and allow that to be their asymmetry. Uh, you know how they naturally were in real life. So what's kind of neat is if you if you do play Roar, not only will you get to learn about the lions that used to live in Africa, uh, in roughly in the areas where they somewhat were found, because the starting areas are color blocked, so you can kind of know where that lion was ish. Um, you also kind of get a sense of you know how Africa was somewhat laid out and where areas that are a little more plentiful or not as plentiful and things like that. Very cool. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Tell me about Bosk. Uh, so Bosk, funny enough, uh, was a game where Daryl one day goes, I really like when leaves are like blowing across the ground. I wonder if that could be a game. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like we, you just described Daryl's like everyday minute by minute life of just wandering <laughs> around and thinking, oh, that could be a game. And anybody listening to this, Daryl Andrews, one of the most prolific game designers on the planet right now. I feel like that's just his natural state of being. Anything could become a game. I feel like it's true, though. Anything, as I, we'll talk about, yeah, as we, well, when we get to Kodama, <laughs> anything can be a game. We'll explain that one a bit more. But uh, the original Bosque was actually called Falling Leaves. And it was very, a bit on, very... A bit on the nose with that bit one. bit on the nose. <laughs> uh, Roar was always called Roar. But we got into this habit. It was actually a funny running joke for a while that we were naming all of our games after songs so we could cut and paste all the song lyrics into emails. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. So, so for Roar, there, when we were sending things in, we really would send in all the lyrics to the Katy Perry song. And there's a, there's a Billy Talent song called Falling Leaves that we sent in for Bosk. Nice. We get silly. Just, it's fine. <laughs> anyway. I'm just, I'm just disappointed that you weren't calling Roar Moving Lions or something like that. <laughs> moving Lions. Moving Lions, uh, Falling Leaves, you know, whatever. Well, I had no idea what Bosk was. I learned something. Uh, when when uh, Ben from Floodgate, Ben Harkins, wanted to name it Bosk, I found out what Bosk meant small wooded area. So I learned something new. No, there you that's, go. that's always good. Uh, but yeah, so it basically came down to how do we translate leaves moving across the ground? And we're like, okay, well, a natural delivery method then would obviously be the trees. And so that became the, well, how do we have this game where you need to set up a trees and a fair amount of them Uh to have your leaves spread. And so we had multiple versions planned out of this game where, you know, maybe the trees are pre-set up or uh, maybe, maybe there's, maybe there's ways you can play off other players. And we played with the trees, you know, the trees actually have numbers at the top because in the beginning of the game, you can score for rows and columns for dominance. So for kind of getting you your first set of points, getting into the game, which also then dictates who is going to adjust the uh, direction of the wind in the second phase matter um if you come in kind of like you know first or last sort of thing uh in the first round but it's a bit of a setup round so it was a dilemma of is it just set up is it part of the game and it's kind of funny how much boss is polarizing and people love that it's almost like two games that work perfectly in conjunction with each other because you can't play one without the other it's impossible and other people who just don't get it because it's almost like two types of area control control games, area or area dominance games that have been wrapped into each other. 
And so you play first half of the dominance is you're planting the, the trees and you're dominating based on the values of the trees on the lines and columns. And then the second half of the game is you dominating the, the actual ground space with your leaves and trying to own those. And so they marry really well together, but it's really interesting because it throws some people off because they've never really played games that do that before. So we got interesting feedback when we first started playing that game around where people are either, this is really cool and I've never seen anything like it and it's really pretty, or why is it two games? <laughs> and so it was quite interesting when we, uh, the, the feedback on that game that we got as we were playtesting it. And there are still people, if you look at the BGG comments, for people who absolutely love that feature or are just very confused by it. Yeah. Now tell me a little bit how you figured out how to turn, you know, blowing leaves into ways to score points and like kind of walk me through the, the way that mechanism came came to be. Uh, yeah, so we wanted to have some sort of control over the leaves, but obviously it's got to be directional. And so what happens in the game is that once the first phase is over, the person who has the lowest score gets to dictate the wind direction. And you will know the wind direction for all eight, fa- like the remaining eight phases, but you get to choose the tree that they blow in the last four. So everyone has a vague sense of like where people might choose to go first. Um, but that it kind of becomes this fun free-for-all about what's left. So when the when the wind first starts, it's going to blow from your your first tree, that your, your trees that say number one, then number two, then number three, then number four. After that, you know the direction of the wind, but you get to choose which tree number it blows from. You also have some control because the person who plays the lowest number of leaves from the previous round automatically gets to go first the next round. So you might intentionally play, you know, you might lose an area on purpose, because your next tree is heading in a direction you're even more favorable for and you want to spend way more leaves going that way. And so what happens is, is that on your turn, you have to pay attention to which way the wind's going. You'll pick a leaf tile and you only have one of each. You have the numbers two to eight and a squirrel. And we'll talk about the squirrel in a little in a minute. He's your, he's your helper. He's kind of like your trump card. Uh, and what happens is, is that from that tree going in that direction, say, let's say I picked a five, I'm going to go five leaves. What I can always do is I can always start from either of the two spaces on either side adjacent to my tree, going in the direction I'm going. And then from there, I can always go one forward going within any of the three. So it's either directly in front of me or, you know, uh, going diagonal left or right. So you can, it's sort of allowing for a spread effect. You're not just like one B like straight line to the end because then you have no control. So you can sort of meander a little bit because you really are meant to be you know leaves being tossed around the ground so you can kind of meander a little bit within the wind direction that you're being pushed but what you're aiming at is the the whole board is color blocked into these different areas um your leaves are trying to dominate those areas the person who has the highest number of leaves in that area is immediately the is top ranked in that area and gets the highest points and second place depending on number of players this can also be third place and there's ties and ties get rounded down but you want to dominate an area because if you are the sole owner of an area it is worth all of the points everything that would have been split amongst those players so it's a big bump it could be eight points versus let's say something got split between you know three and you know one and one or you know three and five or something like that so if you suddenly got eight for an area it was worth you taking that risk 
but players can play on top of your leaves. So it'll cost them. Every layer going up will cost you an additional leaf, but it might allow you to either, you know, get into an area finally, get through an area, or dominate an area because you officially have the most. And that's where the little squirrel comes in. Uh, he was originally our one leaf card, but if people are playing more aggressively, they can actually surround your trees so you can never get away from them. So what this guy allows is he has a certain amount of spaces he can move away from your tree. I believe it's three. I apologize. Changed a few times. I'm almost positive it's three now. He can set that many ways away from your tree. Wherever he goes, even if there's a stack there, he immediately trumps that space and nothing else can ever go on top of him. So he's sort of like a permanent marker for one territory that every player gets to have. He's your little tree helper. <laughs> Very cool. I love how you you and Daryl figured out a way to make a leaf game and make it thematic and make it make sense and the way the wind and yet squirrels. And, and another thing I love about the game is it just looks great. Like we were just talking about a few minutes ago. So tell me about kind of how the 3d trees came to be. Was that your idea there? You know, Daryl, the publisher, like where'd that come from? And then you got these cool little squirrel meeples. Tell me just more about the components of the game and kind of how they came to, to be part of it. Sure. It was always 3d. Uh, I think I think in 3d, I don't know how else to put that. <laughs> Um, I like things to lift off of the board. I don't like flat boards. I don't think I've ever actually made a flat board in my life. If you see the, uh, if you've seen anything about the Scott Pilgrim game that's coming, I literally turned the arena into a pop-up board so that the background springs up and everything in the arena is three-dimensional that you can throw at each other. I don't like flat things. I like things that are, uh, dynamic and interesting and, and, and I, I have a big thing for visual appeal of a game. I want people to look at it and say, I really want to touch something right now. And so that's the hope is that when they see my games, they feel that way. And so the trees were always going to be 3d. Cause that's really, I think, I don't think Daryl ever objected in any way, but um, I, I, I want to say that was probably me since everything I do <laughs> ends up being 3d. But we, when it came to the squirrels, that was actually then that was the publisher because we had, uh, the originally we just had the cards from one to eight. And so we really did run into the problem of if the more aggressive people play, if you really want to be a jerk, you can completely surround a tree. And we never wanted a wasted card. That's the worst thing in a game. You don't want a wasted card, especially a game like this, because it does have that possibility of being that really nice gateway game where you can introduce it to friends who are not heavy gamers because they won't feel overwhelmed by it. Right? And that's, that's the, kind of the hope of that type of game. And so when you have a wasted card, it has that, you don't want that negative experience. And so a really fun solution was that idea of that squirrel trump card. And so originally the squirrel sat next to the tree, but he, <laughs> through development, got slightly more adventurous and started getting a couple more spaces away, uh, just to have a little bit more area of effect. Uh, and what was really cool is when Ben was doing the pre-ordering of Bosk, you could get screen printed meeples. So they weren't just squirrel meeples. And there was a whole thing about what to call them. Are they squeeples? Are they <laughs> like, what, 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 what's a squirrel meeple called? Or, Squirples, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, he had these beautiful screen printed ones done for the pre-order. So uh, anyone who got the pre-order, hopefully you love like this just beautiful wooden pieces. Uh, in it they um, I think Ben did an, uh, you know Floodgate did an amazing job with the um, just overall quality of the game even the trees because they're kind of delicate they are you know 3d you know slot trees 
they in the in the box they already come with these individual four containers that you keep the tree separate in so they don't like they're not just shoving around the box like everything I, I think they did a really good job thinking about the the quality and the components and how everything goes back in and one of the best compliments for boss besides people just saying I love the play is I love the look. There's so many people who take just gorgeous photos of Bosque throughout its different phases. And as we were talking about earlier, I think that's what's really cool about nature-themed games in general is those photo opportunities that build throughout the games. Like Kadama 3D kind of has that, is by the time you get to the end of the game, you've created an actual three-dimensional tree in front of you. You know, you're probably going to want to take pictures of the thing that you made. Um, you know, talking about Daryl's games, Sagrada, people love taking pictures of their completed stained glass window when they're done. Or Azul is another example of that, where people want to take pictures of the final product, the thing they made, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something more and more to be aware of as a designer and especially as a publisher. Is your game Instagrammable? Because it, that's it it's matters. free marketing. It's free yeah. marketing and that's it. Most, most... Uh, most publishers don't have traditional marketing. And so if you can get free word of mouth, that is the most valuable thing you could ever get. Absolutely. And a picture, like the old saying goes, you know, says a thousand words. And so if, if mm -hmm. people are posting pictures of your games online, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, it, it's going to draw more people in, especially if, if you have beautiful components, beautiful art, beautiful things. And so that's one thing, you know, art is expensive, but it's not just for the game. It's also for everything else as well, as far as marketing, as far as table presence, as far as people walking by and seeing it and stopping and wanting to know more. It is so much more than the sunk cost that a lot of times that people make it out to be. And it's just something uh, to be aware of. Now, with, with Bosk, is there like an acorn expansion coming up? Because I can see a lot of fun with dropping acorns and moving those around. And then your squirrel picks them up and he, you know, all sorts of stuff. Funny enough, one of the original things that is being dropped, because uh, it is really hard to find all of the color spectrum. Uh, real life trees that drop those colors and we had but one of the I think it was yellow was originally acorns not leaves so it was still <laughs> spreading but they were acorns but just for consistency's sake <laughs> they, it got turned into a leaf um yeah one of the colors or maybe it was orange just one of the colors it, we uh we ended up making it it was originally an acorn instead no, wait a minute. It was a pine cone. I apologize. It was a pine oh, cone. Oh, well. So the acorn <laughs> expansion is still a possibility. The acorn expansion, maybe it's something <laughs> like the, the squirrels can bury them or something and new new trees can pop up later. Who knows? Yeah, just a new way to score points, you know? Things yeah. Like that. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about Kodama. Tell me about that one. So that one's a, a funny story because it was not originally about trees. Because <laughs> I, uh, I, I, you didn't want to be the tree lady. The, oh, you want to design a game no, about trees? Oh, talk to Erica. Um, She's got you covered on that one. Huh? Yeah, I as we, I you know I think we were talking about this before we were recording. Uh, I have this thing where I look at uh, game designing as kind of like a design challenge. I, I always try to pick a new theme or mechanic I've never done before as a way to push myself to honestly grow. As a designer, I want to, I want to, I look at it as like a skill and a craft that you can definitely improve at and get better and better. And so I don't like to repeat myself. Uh, I, I want to try something different. So when both of the games were coming at the same time, being trees, anyone who knows that about me that notices my games normally look nothing alike each other, like at all. They're like, well, what's with all the tree games? And I'm like, well, Kadama 3D wasn't meant to be a tree originally. It was a crab. And so the original game was decorator crabs. 
because decorator crabs like to stick things on their shells to attract mates. And they create these little ecosystems on their backs because they often like to stick on either animals or coral and things like that. And so what the game originally was is every player had a little uh, mama crab, mama decorator crab. And they were sending their babies out onto the ocean floor to bring them back pretty pieces of coral. And there was different coral in different colors. And it's a set collection game. You're trying to match coral branches or coral types uh, based on objective cards. So you could get your your mama, the, the pieces that were branching off of her, to match. Um, and then each mama had like a secret color that she really liked. So if you happen to pick up coral that was that color, you get some bonuses. And when we went around... Uh, Daryl and I were pitching the game. We actually were talking to indie boards and cards and we're like, this is actually Daryl's brilliant idea. He's like, well, doesn't it just look like a tree when you're done? And they're like, huh? He's like, have you thought about maybe another Kadama game? And so it actually very much lent itself instead of being branches of coral, it was literally branches of the tree. And then when it came down to the colors or what you're collecting, Kadama already had built into the world that each of the tree spirits had kind of like these favorite objects and things that they liked. And so what happened was, is that they just got switched out for those things. The objective cards, you know, for the set collection uh, continued. And now instead of building these branching coral pieces off of your crab, you're building your actual tree to satisfy your Kadama. So it was crabs. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. And so tell me a little bit more as far as like the design process. Was it challenging in figuring out how to make it all fit together? And I can see it being because it is 3D being a challenge, you know, the tree wanting to fall over and you kind of have to be aware of that. Like, tell me about the design process just from a component standpoint. Yeah, it's interesting when you want to design 3D. I will say I've run into some very interesting problems over time. I've even had to get things, not for Kadama, but in general, like things I've had to get things laser cut before. I've had to get things, you know, you you have to get creative when you want things to be able to function three-dimensionally instead of just be so much easier to stick a piece of paper into a card sleeve and call it a card, right? Or just cut out a bunch of cards from a piece of paper. So it was easy to make the base to get started What I originally started off with for prototyping was taking these one and a half inch circular discs, or maybe they're two inch, creating these slots into them, like these kind of cutout pieces that was just thick enough to slot another one of those same discs inside of it. So imagine just the the depth or the the thickness of it, right, was the, the thickness of the slit that was added into each one. And some of them had, so then each one was able to kind of slot onto another one. And we just had a limit on how many you could add to a branch. It works, but the problem with cardboard is it wears down over time. So they did come up with a neat solution of using almost like more like, um, almost like a building set where sometimes things have like those, uh, like that, that cross hatch, where it's more of a, uh, almost like a Phillips head screwdriver kind of idea, where it's got the, the, the X on mm-hmm. it. They yep. came up with that idea as the ways of different different ways of the uh, the tree branch in. So there was more options of directions it could go into. It would fit in a little nicer. It wouldn't rough up as much. So there definitely was production to be thought through. It is really you do, you do have to be really careful uh, production wise, like what works. Like uh, as an example with um, Scott Pilgrim is the the 3d board the background remained 3d but the entire board at one point was going to be 3d i even figured out how to do pull tabs to have 3d objects pop out of the board the issue is how long does that last what happens if somebody breaks it 
right? Or it rips off or something like that. Uh, on the Scott Pilgrim board, I had it that the actual stage raised when you pop the background up, which worked well enough. But again, it's a stability thing. How long is this? It, it's cool that we can do it, but can we do it well enough yet? And so what's going to be really interesting, I think, going games moving forward too, is that I know there's a lot more people out there like me who have these wacky ideas about what could go into a game. And as the manufacturing becomes more and more possible, it's going to be really fascinating to see what kind of components become game components. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as we have advancements in toys, obviously we're going to have more advancements in in games, whether that becomes, you know, games that you can eat or games that have interesting smells or fit together in different ways. It's going to be a lot of fun just to kind of see how games move towards, you know, move and change going into the future. Now with Kodama, the scoring, again, similar to uh, Roar, you're trying to take ideas from real life that aren't necessarily you know, you don't, lions don't score, you don't get points or anything, but you're trying to turn that into a board game where you do have a winner and, you know, losers. Like that. So how, how did you figure out, okay, how are we going to do the set collection? How are we going to do, you know, earning points and winning the game? Like, how did, like, tell me about that process. Uh, so there's a bit of a, Kodama 3D is a bit inspired by like a, Hey, that's my fish sort of play. Uh, but you're doing it for a completely different reasons. So just if you understand the movement of how the, the, um, the Kadamas can move around the board. But what they're really doing is they're carefully trying to think about wherever tile you leave from is the tile you get to collect. And so you're very deliberately looking for the right type of colors or the right, you know, the type of branch or where you want to build from. And that's based off of the, the objectives you've got. Um, so what's neat in the game is it's a fixed number of rounds and you can choose on those rounds to either be taking cards or taking tiles. So you always end up with a specific number each time. And you're doing it because it's one of those neat things where you could actually be pulling cards that are allowing for branches you've already created to continue scoring even more, right? Or you could find out that you've got a card that will allow you to score multiple times because the tiles you need are actually you know accessible to you. And so really what it is, it is very much a set click looking to max out the sets that you've been assigned based on your you know your objective cards and you're trying to do them score them as many times as possible so you can kind of try to outsmart the game as much as you want in trying to kind of like piggyback the same objectives on top of each other you can try to overlap them as much as possible yeah very cool i think one of the answers if you're designing a nature thing game trying to figure out points and whatnot is objectives try to think about what the animals or what the the trees what the fart whatever what it would be quote unquote, trying to do as an objective, right? And then turn that into a way to to score points. So obviously, you know, plants, they want to pollinate or lions, they want to uh, reproduce, things like that. And how can you turn those into goals in the game to one, incentivize players to do the things that are that make sense and that happen in nature, but also ways to to score points. I think that's just an interesting design challenge. Anytime you're taking on a new new nature theme is, all right, what do these animals do? What does this type of landscape do that we could turn into objectives? And I think you can see that, like, I mean, I think, again, that's exactly what makes Wingspan accessible, too, is everything in it is exactly just what those birds would do. What are you scoring? Oh, we're scoring eggs. We're scoring number of birds. We're scoring, you know, things that already are inherently obvious to the behavior of the animal. Yeah, absolutely. All right, when you're playtesting nature theme games what are you looking for what are you really you know taking notes about as far as the playtesters and their their experiences and things like that i think a big thing with nature theme games is 
the feel already matters from the beginning is when you, and I, I know I can be different to other people than this, but a lot of the time a user experience to me is partly the gameplay, but also how they interact with the game pieces. And what that means is, you know, there was a question at one point on, I think, Bosk on one of the BGG forums, people saying, well, why wasn't it a token? And well, when it comes down to it, because you would not feel the same way about the game if it was a token. If this was just a token, the abstractness becomes too abstract. You need to see the thing that you're actually playing with. So it was already kind of a factor from the beginning. Like it needs to have that element. Like it has to be seen that way. Um, when you're setting up a game like this, you almost have to start as much with how you intend the visuals and the pieces to interact as much as the mechanics, because you already have people touching and moving things. Uh, they have to have a certain feel to it. So for example, a lot of, if you look at a lot of uh, nature themed games, they're trying to elicit a certain type of emotion from people. Well, what, you know, creates that emotion you know, other than the experience for the game, any more than the visual as well. Those things have to work so closely together that the user experience, when uh, for me, when I look at nature theme games, as much as it takes more time, I feel like your prototype already has to represent how you see this end product kind of looking like, because that's part of the experience itself. Right, especially when the a lot most of these nature theme games, if you think about almost all of them, have three D elements, right? Or these these grand visual displays that you're creating. Well, isn't that visual display a huge factor in how people both play and feel about the game? And how do you play test that if it's not something that you start from the beginning? That's a really good point, and not something I had thought too much about. But you, you know, you're really trying to invoke the theme as much as possible. And so as much as the mechanisms have to be good and have to be fun and enjoyable and make sense and create interesting choices, the the artwork and the the way everything looks early on, even when, when you're just starting out with playtesting, obviously if you're playtesting by yourself, it doesn't matter. But as you start to reach out to other people, it, it, you really need it to look a certain way if you're really trying to uh, create that experience that you're going for. At least that's how I see it. Like, it's kind of like um, if anyone's ever tried to set up a player board before, we've all had games where you're looking at a player board and you're like, I don't get what any of this is for. Well, that user experience just completely changed how you felt about playing this game. Or you've looked at a player board and you're like, I get exactly how this character works because it's been laid out perfectly for me. That experience has already, again, changed how we play the game. And so I think that in most nature themed games, because they can't be flat, I mean, like, the, except for occasionally a card game, and even then, the the what sells a nature themed card game is the visuals, right? So the visuals are just, yeah, I don't know. It's I just find them so incredibly important to games. They don't don't get me wrong. They they're not more important than you know how the game plays itself. But I think they're already going to be a factor in how someone not only whether or not they pick the game up in the first place. But if they're more likely to like the game, somebody who feels like, you know, like they had a good enough time with the game, if they're enamored with the way the game looks, those two put together is love for a game, right? Someone could love the mechanics of a game, but it doesn't get played that often because it just isn't very appealing to play, right? Or it's hard to get people to agree to play because, you know, everyone's got those games on their shelves that they might love, but other people take one look at it and go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right? 
Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, what's been one of your favorite things or maybe the most most favorite thing about designing nature-themed games? You know what? I like designing theme first uh, because I actually like the way that mechanics naturally follow from the behavior of the thing you're mimicking. And so I love going theme first. I think it's one of the things like, so I'm on a, a show, a, a weekly live show called the Meeple Syrup Show. And it's basically uh, the game industry from the design perspective. The three of us uh, co-hosts on it are all all uh, game designers. And so we, we usually talk about it kind of from the inside perspective. Uh, one of the games we talked about that kind of, and one of the reasons I think it took off the way it did was Pandemic. Because not only is the theme insanely relatable, but every part of the mechanics makes 100% sense to the theme. Even if you didn't understand how you know, a cascading effect game worked or, you know, uh, some of the other mechanics in that game worked, it wouldn't matter because you inherently understand how diseases work around the world. And you can already infer how to play that game as a non-gamer. How beautiful is that? Yeah, absolutely. Now on the flip side, what's been one of the hardest or maybe the hardest thing about designing these kinds of games? Making sure things translate properly, I think. Like anything that feels unintuitive is immediately apparent. You can get away with things in games that you sort of just made up. <laughs> like if you make up the universe, if you make up the reality, if you make up the physics, whatever it is, people are probably just, if the game makes sense, they'll just go along with it. If something behaves in an inherent way naturally and you try to make it act in a different way, it irritates people. It 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 makes them uncomfortable unless you're doing it for a specific reason and you're trying to I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a way to do it in an interesting manner. But if I was, let's say I tried to, you know, I'm making Roar and I had this game about lions and I suddenly started making them do things that lions would never do. That would be just be so uncomfortable for playtesters to play because they're like, well, I don't get what I'm doing. I am so confused by this game. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's, that's a really good point. And I feel like that's something people just need to think more about whatever theme you're designing, whether it's nature or, or whatever it is, you know. Does it make sense? Is it going to be intuitive? Is it going to make the game easier to understand, more accessible? Uh, because the more accessible it is, the easier it is for them to for people to grasp the rules and how the game works, things like that. The more likely they are to play it. And in a in an industry right now that's so busy and so noisy, and so many games coming out constantly, if your game's a little bit more difficult to play than that other game, they're probably going to play that other game. So it's just something to keep in mind. It's true. Or unfortunately, if that game is that little bit better looking or has that little yep. bit more of table presence end of the day a good game isn't just good anymore even sometimes a great game isn't just good anymore because it has to be great and attractive it has to be you know people are talking about it it has to honestly have good luck and even just happens to come out at the right time of the year at the right get the right notice because there's a lot of that too there's a lot of great games that are being completely overlooked um just because there's so much noise in the market right now that you might never hear about them yeah. And it's something that you, as a designer or a publisher, you can get upset about, you can get mad at and, and kind of blame the market, or you can lean into it and just start uh, doing things based on what the market is asking for. And that's beautiful yeah. components, beautiful art, uh, you know, wonderful organizational systems inside the box. All these things we've been talking about, they, they're what will, will set your game apart or, or your mm -hmm. company apart from everybody else. And I think a lot of publishers are really working right now. They were working so hard to specialize for so long to be known for like that one thing. I think that's going to be the opposite of what's going to keep them successful right now. So what you're going to hear more and more from a lot of publishers, or at least what I'm hearing, is the diversification of their lines. 
they need that family game. They need that gateway game. They need that heavy game. They need that. So that, that publisher that you normally would have been like, oh yeah, they make this type of game. And you look at them like Bezier is a good example or um, pretzel games or people where you look at them and you go, but you used to make this. And then you see the games that are coming out right now are so different from what their lineups used to be that you're, you're, you're going to start to notice it more and more, this diversification. Yeah, the way I, you know, my, my old football brain thinks about it, it's, it's kind of the NFL draft. There's two different ways you could go. You could either take the player that, you know, you have a position open, you got some openings in a certain area, so I need to take a running back, I need to take a quarterback, whatever. Or you could take the best available player, no matter what position they are. And a lot of teams, they just say, I'm going to take the best available. And I think that's what a lot of publishers are doing right now. They, they might be saying, you know, hey, we need this or that. But also, this is the best available. I know we don't normally publish a lot of family games, but wow, this is the best available game right now that I'm seeing, and it happens to be a family game. Let's just publish it, and let's let's just kind of go with it. Or hey, this is going to hit a whole new market, and guess what? We just yep. you know tapped into like basically a whole new revenue stream. You forget yep. if you target someone, you're basically excluding everybody else. And yep. you know that that That's works really in point. some markets, but uh, with gaming the way it's coming down, especially since. I mean, I you know, the Funko picking up Forrest Prezan is going to be an interesting indicator of the future. Uh, you, you've got design studios now. And what's that going to mean? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the future, and I kind of circle back to nature theme games, what are some nature themes that you would like to see other people design or, or, you know, other games that you would like to see come out that have some kind of a nature theme? We're talking about there's lots of butterfly games, lots of bee games, anything that you, you think hasn't been tapped into you'd like to see? People like bugs, eh? You know what's interesting? I really think there should be an ant game because the only ant game came out that had nothing to do with ants. Uh, there was that one called, I think it was called Metropolis that uh, Madago mm-hmm. made like a year or yep. two ago. There was also March of Ants by Tim Eisner a while back that was like super, it was pretty heavy. It was very Euro in nature. It was super thematic. It didn't get a lot of buzz just because, I don't know, for whatever reason. But, but like you said, there's only two of those ant games that I know of. I think that you could find a really nice gateway game that is ants because ants do fascinate people, especially if you could get them to like actually have physical ant, like little ant guys. And they like, I don't know. Little ant, like little ant dudes on a map. Little Little ants on a map. Something, I don't know, something. (laughs) And maybe they could build things or I don't know. Anyway. uh, That'd be cool if you had like a 3D ant hill that you were building and you start with the foundation and you move up and you kind of, yeah, I mean, there's been so many games about the ancient Egyptians building pyramids. I mean, how many hundreds of games about that? And you kind of have these cool 3d things going on. Why not ants? Well, what's neat about nature themes too, is you can start to border into that educational market. Like it doesn't, you know, just because educational doesn't mean it has to be a bad game. You just happen to learn something about that animal or that timeline or whatever it is. Right. So that's a really, really good point. And talking about open up, opening up new markets, yeah. there's so many homeschool groups that really love games, want to bring games and do that. So many classrooms like your classroom, like my classroom, where you're using games as part of the curriculum and what you're doing. I think that's a huge market because most education games have been awful and they've been basically worksheets Boring. disguised themselves as games. Right. Yeah. But it's really been two plus two equals four just with like a zombie on there or a knight or something like that. But it hasn't been a game so much as an activity. And I think that's a, that's a huge opening in the market that some, yeah. some people could really take advantage of. Or like a rainforest game, but don't make it like super negative about like, you know, it dying. Maybe it's a way of like <laughs> reverse it and you're already at a bad state and you have to actually figure out how to rebuild it, you know, stuff like that. 
or anything that could create interesting conversation, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing we were talking about earlier is like, how can you create games or, or things in your classroom that create discussion, that create kids having to think about things and process information? And that leads into a deeper discussion later or something like that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Erica, this has been really, really great. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any like closing thoughts? You know, if somebody, maybe they're sitting there working on a nature thing game, they, they've been listening to this and they're like, Ooh, I want to design a game about spider monkeys in Madagascar, whatever it is, what would be your kind of closing advice to them? You should design that game about spider monkeys in Madagascar. Um, actually, anyone who's really interested in this, uh, as I was saying before, that's kind of what the point of our meeple syrup show is. Um, so if it's okay, if I give a little bit of a plug, uh, not only is the, the show, uh, I mean, we deal with these topics, but we actually started last year, the meeple syrup shop talk group. And I would say half the group is, uh, industry vets, people who are publishers, owners, uh, production people, you name them. The other half are people who want to get into these things, want to get their games designed, even want to get just their first game made. And so you're welcome to post questions in there. And so one of the new initiatives we just started is we just started the uh, Maple Syrup uh, uh, boot camp. And if you want to follow the milestones, it doesn't matter if you started late, it's all the milestones to lead you through actually creating your game, getting that game, you know, get that idea, generate it, get it created, get it to a table, get it started testing, get it iterated. Uh, we've got our next big check-in is coming up soon and we're going to do a bit of an iteration of, you know, how basic or how the, uh, boot camp is going. Uh, but we've actually started a program for people who want to do this. And if you want to kind of follow along on the shop talk group, um, people will support you. You can post your questions and they'll, you know, help, you know, walk through or help you go through any of the problems or troubleshooting that you need. Um, it's a great that. And you'll be part of a group of people who are also trying to do the exact same thing you are. They're trying to also get their game off the ground and get it going. Um, so if you ever get a chance, like designer nights, um, you know, online groups like this, wherever you have people supporting you or kind of, you know, other people you can sort of keep pace with just to keep you motivated, keep you moving. It is a great way not to, you know, just rely purely on your own internal motivation, which is so hard. It is so easy to say, eh, tomorrow tomorrow you know going back to the idea of writing that novel like eh, tomorrow but if you kind of if you interact with it, another group and you know it matters to you to kind of you know keep pace with them you're much more likely to actually get it done and keep moving than if you you know rely purely on yourself it is great to find a community communities in board gaming can be so supportive uh they can be so helpful and you know what you need someone to rip apart that game early don't be afraid to get that game out there, let them gut it, you know, work it back down to what the, the best parts of it are and just build it back up from there because that's really what you're trying to do if you're trying to make a good game. Absolutely. Well, hey, you've got some other really cool projects in the works. Tell me about some of those. Yeah, I'm really excited. We were just talking about, you know, things coming out in clumps, making it look like I'm all nature themed. Well, everything coming out next year is all people themed. <laughs> so I'm going to look like I'm doing nothing but uh, comic books and cartoons next year. Um, I've got at least the ones that are announced is, um, I've got a Steven universe game coming out because I am a huge Steven universe fan. Um, if the game goes well, there's actually hopes for more. This is just the first one. This is a card game. It's called uh, beach of Palooza bash and you are Steven and the Stevens. Each of you get to be your own Steven and have a band and you're recruiting your other gems, uh, to stop some party crashers and corrupted homeworld gems from ruining you know, the awesome 
you're trying to have for all the boardies. Uh, so that one's a really fun one, especially if you're a Steven Universe fan. But even if you're not, hopefully you'll just really enjoy the gameplay. The art is gorgeous. It's a lot of fun. It's cute. But you're getting, you, you still get some, um, uh, some battle elements going on in there, too. So if you like a little bit of combat, you'll like it. But it's, not, it's still very family-friendly because, you know, it's Steven Universe. I've got uh, the Kickstarter for Scott Pilgrim was in November and so that went really awesome um it's basically uh six games because you have each of the evil x's has their own level um they're all individual characters I think there's like 21 minis (laughs) total in that game there's four different pop-up venues there's tons of 3d items that you can throw around like this it's a giant Scott Pilgrim sandbox is uh was my goal and it was designed for people who were both fans of the comics, fans of mini combat world. Um, but it was also meant to be friendly, that you could hopefully, you know, encourage friends who are not heavy gamers or maybe or maybe a bit more afraid of minis games to still play because it's a dice allocation game. So you get to roll your dice, you can assign it to your different values. Uh, there's some classic video game elements to it where your character slowly levels up and gets new powers. Uh, as you gain experience and you get fun combos every time you level up you get like some ridiculous thing you get to do uh, and have kind of like maybe a blitz out turn and uh, it really is just supposed to be kind of an open sandbox that you can play in with the Scott Pilgrim world and uh, just have lots of fun kind of beating just beating each other up (laughs) (laughs) awesome well again really appreciate your time appreciate you coming on the show good luck with all those games coming out soon and uh, good luck with everything else you got going on right now thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?